Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Revelation chapter 11. Last week, we, we entered the second parenthetical pause in the book of Revelation, and uh, we considered uh, the, this mighty angel who had uh, had the scroll in his hand and uh, came down to make that oath before the Lord that, that no more delays. And uh, as he did that, we remember there were seven thunders that sounded, and, and John was told not to write down what it was that transpired there. And, uh, and, and then at the, towards the end of the chapter, the Lord tells, the mighty angel tells John to, to, or the Lord tells John to take the scroll from the mighty angel, and he takes it, and he says, eat it. It's going to be bitter sweet. It's going to be sweet to your mouth, but bitter to your stomach. And, uh, you know, of course, we don't know what's written in there, but what we do know is at the end of the chapter, we know that the Lord tells uh, John that he must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so it's assumed that the things that were in that scroll have to do with what it is that John will then go and tell people about there. So that's where we left off last week. We're continuing on in this parenthetical pause. And today we will consider two other things, two other uh, things r related to uh, John and his mission in, in revealing Jesus to us. And it is the temple and the two witnesses. So stand with me and we're going to read that this morning. John says, then I was given a, a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that sim symbolically is called uh, Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the language and the nations will gaze as their dead bodies, gaze at their dead bodies, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because. These two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to glean from it this morning what it is that you desire for each and every one of us, Lord. We know that you have a specific word for us individually this morning that you want to fan the flame in our hearts and awaken our souls to maybe something new or Lord you want to do a work in us and so we want to be open this morning to whatever it is you, you want to do you are Lord we are not and so we humble ourselves before you we open our hearts to you Lord we ask you not only give us ears to hear, but give us hearts to obey your word. Fill us with your spirit now and come and speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you know anything about architecture and building homes, you know that although homes look different on the outside, 
at the core, all homes are the same. God is not a cookie-cutter community builder. He likes diversity in appearance and function, but the bones of the building are all the same. Just as homes have more or less bathrooms, but are identical in the sense that they all have plumbing, so too are you and I. Last time I checked, there was one inlet and two outlets, you, you know, whether you're male or female. We all have the same kind of plumbing. The same holds true for, for the electrical system in, in, in homes. You know, there might be uh, various outlets, you know, and, and different types of light fixtures and ceiling fans and all those kinds of things, but every house is wired the same. Hopefully that doesn't come to, as a shock to you, pun intended. Uh, every house is wired the same, so too is every human being. We might be wired a little differently, but, it, but it, it's similar in the structure and what God intended. You might be single phase and various different types of voltages. You might be three phase and various different types of voltages. But at the core, we're all wired for two specific reasons. Worship and witness. God, as our chief architect, um, has made us all the same. He's the master builder. He's the electrical engineer that has created us uh, for these two purposes. We are wired for worship and witness. That's the title of my message this morning. Here we find in our text these two elements, uh, you know, in chapter 11, in the first 14 verses, we see worship represented in the temple that John is called to measure, and we see witness represented in these two witnesses that are sent into the earth. And I think there is a picture for us in the midst of this chapter. We might not be in the middle of the tribulation. We might not be with these guys, but we certainly do have the exact same calling. What we find in our text this morning is really uh, sort of a call back to the basics. Worship and witness. First, we're going to consider worship here as we look at the temple that John is called to measure. Look at verse 1 there. It says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the outside, the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So in case you didn't, in case you've forgotten, the tribulation period, as we've been going through the, the, the book of Revelation verse by verse, you recall that, you know, I've been saying over and over again, the purpose of the tribulation is twofold. First and foremost, it's Jewish in nature. God is turning his sights back to the nation of Israel. And, you know, he's not done with the nation of Israel. The church doesn't replace the nation of Israel. Um, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And if that were not so, then you should be very nervous because there are many unconditional covenants that God made with the nation of Israel, promises that he's made to the, that were unconditional, meaning it had nothing to do with them, but it had everything to do with God. So if you think, think the church replaces Israel, I would be very nervous because God changes his mind then. God does not lie. He does not change his mind. And in fact... The psalmist tells us in Psalm 138, uh, verse 2, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And in fact, the King James Version, New King James Version says, You have magnified your word above your name. Listen, God is not a liar. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenants. Everything that he says he will do, he will do. And therefore, he does have a plan for Israel. He has a, he's not done with the nation. And, and this seven-year period of tribulation is primarily for God to deal with the nation of Israel. And we see this beginning in chapter 4 all the way through. Um, really, the end of the millennial reign, we will see all of the Jewish symbolisms that point us to Jesus Christ. I, I know that you've seen some already, but there are two here found in our chapter this morning that are very Jewish in nature. We have the temple, of course. We'll talk about that in a moment, what that temple is and what it represents. But we also have these two witnesses that are clothed like Old Testament prophets who have come into the world to represent, to prophesy. 
and to proclaim the gospel. And so we'll check this out. But, but here we have John talking about a temple. So he's talking about the, the Jews. You know, it's primarily Jewish, tribulation. Secondly, it's also for the rest of the world, God giving an opportunity. He's a merciful God. We've been saying this over and over again. God is so merciful in the tribulation period that he would give people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to Christ. And I don't know about you, but I can look back on my life and see that to be true. God could have taken me out of this world so many different ways and so many times, but I wasn't saved. And he saved me, and he continues to be with me, and he's got a plan. But he is going to save people in the tribulation period. He's trying to draw all people to himself. God desires, as we said, you know, that no man would perish, but all would come to repentance. He's a merciful God in the midst of his wrath. John is, is given this picture of this temple here, and he's told to measure it. Now, this has to be kind of interesting to John, I would think, because you and I know that this was written sometime around 25 years after the temple had been destroyed. So you got to wonder if John, who was walked in Jerusalem, saw the temple, you know, understood what it represented because he also walked with Jesus is now given a measuring rod and said, hey, measure out this temple. He's got to be wondering, like, what in the world are you doing here, Lord? Why, why would you have me to do this? What temple are you referring to? Because there is no temple in Egypt. Now, our minds, if we are in Egypt and Jerusalem, but what our minds might reflect backward when we look at this, talking about a measuring of a temple. It might jog your memory. If you're a Bible student, you know, oh, maybe he's referring of the same temple that Ezekiel had the vision of, and Ezekiel was called to measure out the temple after the, um, the Gog and Magog wars of Ezekiel 38 and 39. We know Ezekiel 40 through 43 is Ezekiel measuring out all the different parameters of the temple. Uh, that temple is a different temple than the temple that John sees, and I'll explain why in a moment. The temple that John is seeing is a temple that is yet to be built. It doesn't even exist to this day. We know that there have been, some say four, some say five temples that have existed or will exist in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. We've seen two to three of them, depending on how you look at the, the, the temple that was built coming out from the, from the children of Israel coming out of the Babylonian captivity to Herod rehabbing it. So if that's considered one temple still, then, then there would be two. But if you consider Herod's temple a third temple, then that would be three. But the first temple, you might recall, was built by David. Remember, it's held, the, the account is laid out for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 1 Chronicles chapter 17. You can read it later. But David is perplexed because he looks at himself and how he's living and then he, he's reflecting on the tabernacle, and he's thinking, my house, God's house. My house, God's house. He's like, I live in this, this mansion, you know, permanent structure that's going nowhere, and God is living in a tent, you know, and, 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 and he's mobile. He, it's, it's not a permanent structure. And so he says, he calls Nathan into his, I guess, King, king office or whatever. I don't know what they called it, but they, David and, he, and Nathan are sitting there, and he says, dude, I want to build God a temple. He called Nathan, dude. I don't know if you know that, but, uh, <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, and, and Nathan is like, dude, do it, dude. Man, do it. And, and then Nathan goes home, as often happens with Nathan and David, and the Lord says, hold on, Nathan. You spoke out of turn. You didn't ask me, but here's what I want you to tell David. He can't do that. Because he's a man of war, there's blood on his hands. But I will honor his desire to build me a temple, and I'll do it through his son. Uh, and so God gives a promise to David that when he, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, God speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, speaking of Solomon, who will Come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is an amazing promise that God gives to David here. This is beyond God saying, 
you can build me a temple, David. This is an eternal uh, promise. This is a messianic reference that David's throne, that the lineage of David would lead to the Messiah who would hold the throne forever and ever and ever. It would come through David's lineage. What an amazing promise that God has given. And here's the thing. David was, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was not perfect. And we find that sometimes our actions have consequences that limit God being able to do certain things in our lives. You know, there, there are those things. David, the temple couldn't be built by his hands or by his, his um, you know, oversight because he was a man of war. He was, there was blood on his hands. The Lord told him, as David tells his son about what's going to happen in 1 Chronicles 22, he tells him, God told me I can't do it because there's blood on my hands. So he was limited in his ability to, to work for the Lord. And I would say for us, that's the same case. Sometimes the things that happen in our lives do limit God being able to do certain things in our lives as a result of the way that we're living. However, there's always redemption. You think of Solomon. Who's Solomon? Solomon is David's, by the way, second child from a lady named Bathsheba whom he had a, an adulterous affair with. And then, you know, David had his, her husband killed so that he could try and cover up his sin. And yet here we find also at the same time when David is limited in what God can do in his life, we see some sort of redemption in, in the, the, the things that transpired in his life, the bad decisions that he made, the sins that occurred, that God says, David, I'm going to bless your son, and I'm going to use him. You know, and, and so... Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, God could never use me. Listen, here's what I know, is God redeems what seems to be the unredeemable. But God can work. God can use you in ways that you yourself could never fathom. But it's his work and what he wants to do. We surrender. Here's the thing is don't ever count yourself out. Because, uh, you know, even though David made some mistakes, God still worked through him in his lineage to accomplish his purpose. He has a plan for you. And he wants to do his work through you. You have to allow him to do it. So Solomon goes on to build the temple, of course. And we know that that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and as the children of Israel were taken away from captivity, and then when they were brought back into, capti or back into the land of uh, Israel, they were building a second temple. But we know that according to Haggai's rend <laughs> the, the, the conversation that the Lord's having uh, through Haggai and chapter 2 of Haggai, that it's not such a great temple that they've built. It's kind of depressing in comparison to what they saw in Solomon's build in comparison to this second build. And, and it was that temple, although it was, it was a temple, but it wasn't as magnificent and glorious as the previous temple, but it was a temple nonetheless. It's that temple that some 200 years later that um, Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the altar and he slaughters a pig to Zeus in this altar that was built by the, the, the exiles coming back into the land of Israel. And he desecrates the, uh, the, the altar and the temple there. Uh, his purpose in doing that, by the way, was his goal in life was to convert the entire world to, to Zeus worshipers. Who does that sound like? I'm going to convert every religion and all peoples to worship this one false god, Zeus. It's the, it sounds like the Antichrist, doesn't it? Because he was a type of the Antichrist. John, the same apostle here, tells us that there have been Antichrists that have come in the world already. The, the, the spirit of Antichrist is at work. So we know that. There's been different types. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of them, except for he failed in his, in his goal to convert everybody. But there will be one that will come one day. And this world will come alongside him, and there will be a one-world religion. What that will be, we don't know. But we know that will happen. So we had the second temple around 37 B.C. then, 30 years prior to Jesus coming on the scene. There is a third temple built. It's not built. It's sort of rehabbed. The temple, the second temple is rehabbed by Herod the Great, who, by the way, was uh, an incredible architect and builder. If you look at the structures that Herod the Great has built in Israel, if you've been to Israel and you go to the different sites that Herod the Great was responsible for building, you're like, whoa, this guy 
had a mind that could build. And he built the temple magnificent and glorious. And the Jews were so proud of the temple, man. They put all their faith in not the God of the temple, but the temple itself. Just like many people do the religion and not the God of that. They were following the wrong thing. But it was a magnificent build that he did there. Uh, and yet, it too would be destroyed, just like Jesus said it would be. A.D. 70, the Romans come in, and Jesus told his disciples as they were <laughs> boasting over the gloriousness of the temple, right? He goes, dude, hey, this, this temple, look, that temple right there, not a single stone will be left upon another. It's going to be totally destroyed, totally destroyed. And Jesus was right. Do you know that the only thing left from that temple is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And the Wailing Wall wasn't the temple. It was just the retaining wall of, of one side of the, the Temple Mount. 17 layers of stones are underground still. Could you imagine the height, the stature, when Jesus was tempted by the enemy, probably took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and it was hundreds of feet down. I mean, the, the stature of this thing was magnificent, and yet it was toppled. By the, by the Romans who came in and uh, saw the gold inlay on the walls and said, oh, we, we need to get that gold out of there. So they burned the temple down, melted the gold, and took every stone apart to get every ounce of gold that was in there, just like Jesus said would happen. The Wailing Wall now is the, the, the place where, it's called the Wailing Wall because they go there to cry over the, that, the fact that they have no temple, the destruction of the temples. And they put their little prayers in those, in those stones and they cry out to God and they, they wail because they long for a place of worship. If you go to the, uh, the temple, um, the mount there, you see that they are, um, there is plans for yet a fourth temple to be built. That's the one that John, I believe, is speaking about here. This fourth temple that does not exist even to this day. But, but listen, uh, the Jewish uh, Temple Institute there in Jerusalem is ready to pull the trigger at any point in time, folks. They have the plan ready. Um, do you think they build buildings fast here today? When, when they have the go-ahead to build the temple in Jerusalem, it will go up faster than anybody's ever seen. It will go up so fast. They probably have it built somewhere and they just airdrop it in. I don't know. But... <laughs> But they are ready. They, they are chomping at the bit. Why? Because they don't have a place to worship. And if you're Jewish and you understand, uh, you know, the Old Testament, you know you need, a, you need a temple. You need a sacrificial system. You need these things. How do they, you know, here today, Yom Kippur, you know what they do? They, they stay at home and they meditate on their life the whole year. And they just, you know, evaluate that and they ask God for forgiveness. That's how they celebrate Yom Kippur. There is no forgiveness in that, folks. In the Jewish law, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And by the way, the blood of bulls and goats covers sin. The blood of Jesus Christ removes it. And so that's why they long for a temple to be built. The one that John is measuring here is probably that temple that is supposed to be built. If you go and talk to them today, they're the, the rabbis in the Jewish, you know, the temple institute there. Um, they'll tell you, we have everything we need. We're ready to go right now. They could, they could pull the trigger and have a sacrificial system in place without even a temple. They could do that. They're, they're that ready. Have you ever watched the news? You can see that the Jewish people are practicing the rituals of going through what it would look like, the procession and all of these kinds of things, so they're ready for this. The red heifer, they got all the stuff that they need, and in fact, one of the things that we know that they need is the Ark of the Covenant. How do you make atonement for sin without the mercy seat? And here's what they'll tell you. We have everything that we need. Do they have the Ark of the Covenant? You ask that question, they will tell you we have everything we need. They won't say they have it, but they won't say they don't. Some people believe it was destroyed. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but what I do know is there will be a fully functioning temple in the tribulation period where sacrifices will be made. And we know that for sure. That's the temple that I believe that John is seeing here. The temple of Ezekiel will then be a fifth temple 
which will be the temple that will be uh, erected during the, um, the millennial reign of Christ. And that will be the temple that um, Jesus will be ruling and reigning from. And, and, you know, David will have his seat there too. And, and, you know, we'll be able to, we, I believe, will be ruling and reigning with Christ. And we'll be able to see the entire picture from end to end, what, what all of those things, how they all pointed to Jesus. Isn't that, it's so cool if you do the, the studies on, on uh, you know, the Old Testament and how when God was putting things in place, there was always a purpose. Nothing was wasted. It all pointed us to Jesus. Even the, the descriptions of uh, the, the end carvings on the walls of the temple and the doors and all of that stuff, it all pointed to Jesus. It's such an amazing, amazing study. But uh, the fourth temple that I believe John is now called to measure out, which will be the, the temple that will be built in the tribulation period, he's called to not just measure the temple itself, but the altar and those who worship there. That Greek word temple is not referring to the entirety of the temple. It's kind of interesting. He uses a different word here, which is speaking only of the inner temple. He's talking about the holy of holies, the holy place, and the inner court where the altar would be located. John is only called to measure those portions of Scripture, of those portions of the temple. And he's also called to measure the altar. What is the altar? Probably the brazen altar where they make the sacrifices. And not only that, but he's called to measure those who worship there. Speaking of the Jews who will be worshiping in this temple during the tribulation period, which, by the way, I thought was interesting uh, if, if there will be a one world religion and I know we like to put everything in order and have our theology but this is kind of threw a, a wrench in my little theology you know if there's going to be a one world religion it, it's not going to start at the beginning of the tribulation period because the Jews will be worshiping in their temple the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob for three and a half years how do we know that because Daniel said it Daniel said that in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 where it says, and he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So the Jews have a fully sacrificial system and offering and all of that, but halfway through the tribulation period, the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, and it says, and on the wing of abomination shall one come and make who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. And... And so many people, uh, you know, will see that happen. So how could that, how could a one world religion be occurring during that time? I don't, I don't think it can until mid-trib, just food for thought. But many people today are struggling with the concept of how even a, a temple could be built on the Temple Mount. If you know the story, you understand the contention between the Jews and the Muslims. Do you know that all comes all the way back to Abraham and, you know, he and his wife's decision to try and help God out. You ever done that before? God, I'm going to help you out. I know this is what you said, but I think this is what you meant. We, we, and you wink at him. You know, you're like, we got you, God. <laughs> and so they, you know, Sarah gives his, her maidservant to Abraham so that they can have the child that God promised. And it's not the, <laughs> it, you know, contrary to popular belief, it wasn't the child that God promised. And, and that, now there's a problem. God's saying, wait a second, I didn't promise that child, um, but I'm going to take care of him because God cares for people. Even, you know, people that aren't, it's not done the way that he wanted it to be done. He still loves people, man. And he says, I'm going to take care of Ishmael and Hagar, but I'm going to give you a child. And so he ends up giving Isaac, and Isaac is the, is the child of promise, and that's where God will pass down through the the, linea the, the promises of Abraham down through Isaac. But here's the thing. Ishmael was the firstborn son of, of Abraham. That's why there's a contention. And, and Ishmael was the father of the, of the Muslim nations. That's why there's such a contention in Israel uh, over this whole situation um, in the name of trying to help God out. So by the way, don't help God out. Let him do what he, say, he says he's going to do on his own. He doesn't need your help. But but that creates a problem because when the children of Israel came, or, you know, the nation of Israel was reestablished on uh, May 14th, 1948, and the Temple Mount, um, th during that process, you know, there was a lot of things that happened for over 20 or 30 years or 40 years 
But the, the nation of Israel ended up giving back to the Muslim nation the Temple Mount as a peace offering. Just like, hey, let's just have peace. Here's the Temple Mount. And of course, they had, uh, they had the, the Muslims built what was called the Dome of the Rock. It's, their worships, there's all kinds of worship centers up there, by the way. But they have the Dome of the Rock that they believe they built on the, the Temple Mount site. And um, it's interesting, though, as, as I relate it back to the scripture here, that John is not called, he's only called to measure out the, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and the inner court, but not the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles. And uh, he says, measure, the court, uh, measure everything except for the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months is a... 1,260 days using the, the 360 day calendar as Daniel did, which is three and a half years. So for three and a half years, um, it says that the nations will trample the holy city. I think this is a reference to what is going to happen when the Antichrist steps into the holy of holies and claims himself to be God and to worship them, the children of Israel then take off halfway through the tribulation period, and Israel is left there, and it'd be trampled overfoot. It could, could be a reference to the second half of the three-and-a-half-year tribulation period, but it could also be that this three-and-a-half-year period is being um, it, where the, the nations are trampling the holy city for 42 months. It could be simultaneously happening as the children of Israel are worshiping on the Temple Mount. How is that? Because many believe that the, the Dome of the Rock, who, who the, the Muslims thought that they built on the site of the original temple, many people believe that they missed it, that they got it wrong because there was no stone left on another. They, they don't know where the original site was. And so they, they kind of did some research and they thought that they got it right. Uh, they, they may not have. There's a researcher, Dr. Asher Kaufman, who is a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He published some research relating to the original site of the temple in the March-April um, 1983 edition. You probably have that at home. Uh, the uh, Biblical Archaeological, Archaeological Review Journal. You know, probably just there, some light reading for you. Uh, but his conclusion was, based on all of the research that he had done, that the Dome of the Rock is not built on the original Temple Mount site. Uh, it, and, and so he, many believe that there is a, a gazebo just uh, northwest, 27 meters or something, northwest of the, the, the Dome of the Rock that's called the Dome of the Spirits or the Dome of the Tablets. And according to his research, he's saying, hey, that's actually where that little dome is. That's actually where the Holy of Holies was, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And it's very possible that the reason why God is telling John not to measure out the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, is because they could build the temple, simultaneously have the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount, and it still work. And it still be exactly the way it's supposed to. Which is interesting, because that would be then the court of the Gentiles, wouldn't it? I mean, it could be. I mean, it also is kind of interesting. When we were at Israel, you go right across from um, the, the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. And you get over on the top of the Mount of Olives and you're looking across and you see the temple there. And, and right here, right, right in this area, this is the Eastern Gate. That's the Eastern Gate. It's all walled up. Why? Because people, uh, the 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 people throughout time understood the prophetic word that Jesus would come through the, through the eastern gate into the temple. That would line up directly with the temple, the Holy of Holies, wouldn't it? That would make sense. There are also other people who would suggest that this temple mount isn't even in the correct place at all. So we don't know, but what we do know is that God will have another temple built in the tribulation period. There will be worship and the, the, the nations will trample those courts for 42. We know that because that's what it says. How that all works out, we don't know. 
the, the point that I make here is that, you know, the, the temple itself, it's Jewish in nature, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the worship center of the Jew. And they go to worship, they go to a place to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, by the way, is the same God we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the difference. We don't go to a place. We are the place. We are the temple of God. God resides inside of us. And so, you know, we're not going to a location to bring worship to God. We bring worship to God at every location we go. And that, that means that as we are in the world, we're worshiping. You and I, wherever we go, we take the glory of God with us. And, you know, if you're a believer and you're vocal about that, people are watching. Is he a worshiper? Let's see. Let's see how they worship. Let's see how great they worship. Let's see how they worship at 6 o'clock when their Super Bowl team's not winning the game. We'll see how that goes. Listen, you're a worshiper. You're the temple of God as believers in Jesus Christ. And you're wired to worship. You're called everything that you do, you're supposed to do for the glory of God. Whether you're taking your groceries out to your car for the glory of God, you're in your cubicle at work, typing away for somebody that doesn't appreciate you for the glory of God, everything you do is worship, folks. And here's what I'll tell you, is that your worship will lead to witness. Your worship will lead to witness. As you live your life for Christ, as the temple of God, wherever you go worshiping him, it will open up opportunities for you to be his witness. We go on here in verse 3, and, and we find God now talking about these two witnesses that will come, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Notice it's God who will grant these two witnesses authority. They're his witnesses. Wait a second, so are you. You're his witness. We were crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is not my life to live and to do whatever I want to do with it. I'm called to be his witness in this world. These two guys, I know it would sound tempting, but they're not there to see the sights. They're not, well, where did Jesus, where was Jesus' tomb at? And they're in Jerusalem because they have a call on their lives to do something specific. They're called to be his witnesses. Did you know that as a believer, that's the only reason you have breath in your lungs? To be his witness? so that you can go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, people, can, people that knew you prior to coming to Christ can say to you, wow, look at what God's done in your life. That's amazing. What, what's different about you? And you have an opportunity to be a witness for him. The re, as we're born again, when we become born again, we have one purpose, folks, and it's to share Jesus Christ with people. It's to live for him. It's to you know, to bring glory to God on the earth and to lead as many people as we can to him until we're called home. That's our purpose. That's what we're called here to do. And these witnesses will be called for that very purpose. Notice it says that they, there will be two witnesses. Why two? Why not seven? Why not 144? Well, there'll be those too, right? 144,000, by the way, which will be simultaneously witnessing um, all over the world at this point. But these two witnesses, the, the number, the, the, the two or three witnesses, that should jog your memory a little bit. The reason why, too, is because it took a minimum of two witnesses to declare something as fact and true. So it took a minimum of two or three, the Lord said in the Old Testament, to keep people honest, because he knows how people are. Hey, even at the account of two or three witnesses, it was... Uh, Jesus was falsely accused, so it's not to say that it can't happen, but, it, but, but the point is he sent two, and what are they supposed to be doing? Prophesying. They're supposed to be proclaiming the truth of uh, the things that are to come, to, to speak forth with the authority of God, but also to foretell the things that are about to happen. I think they're prophesying about the next three and a half years and about what God is going to do in what's called the great tribulation period where he rains down judgment like sevenfold 
compared to the first three and a half years. And, um, and they are to come and proclaim not just the judgment, but also the gospel. There'll be witnesses of the gospel in the world uh, during this time. They will prophesy for a period of 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. It's interesting that he makes a, a, a distinction between he shifts from 42 months when we're talking about the nation of uh, the, the nations trampling the courts of the, the temple, that that's talking about, that's in months, but yet this is in days. Because these guys, their call isn't once a week. It isn't twice a week. Isn't it Sundays and Thursdays? Okay, Sunday and Wednesday, we got to get out there and witness. You know, it's these days that we witness. No, it's every day. It's like there's a shift in, in the idea of, of the call here to daily prophesy. These guys will be teaching and prophesying on a daily basis, listen, in sackcloth. When's the last time you've seen somebody show up at your home fellowship in sackcloth? You're like, whoa, that's an awesome outfit, man. Where'd you get it? I mean, you're like, whoa. Uh, these, listen, the point of it is, is because it represents something. When in this culture, again, this is Jewish, guys. This is, the, the nature of this is very Jewish. He's saying uh, they, they come in sackcloth, which is representative of mourning and distress and grief. If you saw somebody show up in sackcloth in Jerusalem with dust on their head and their, you know, the, or their ro robe shredded or whatever, you know something's wrong. That's the point. These guys are going to come to come to the, the holy city, which is Jerusalem here, in sackcloth, and they're going to come in the clothing of mourning. In the clothing of mourning, they're going to be they're going to show up and they're going to proclaim the wrath of God coming down on the earth every day, all day long. They're just going to proclaim this. And you know how many people will turn away from the? the, the well, our account says that people don't want to hear them; they want to kill them. That's what happens when you proclaim the truth to people, folks. They want to kill you. Ask Joe Rogan what happens when you try and bring the truth out. I mean, here's a guy. He does not stand on your side, but he does not stand on their side. He says he's all about the truth, and the truth will get in trouble in this culture. And if you're trying to seek the truth, listen, Jesus says the truth will set you free, but the enemy will try and kill you if you proclaim the truth. These guys are going to be witnessing every day, all day, in sackcloth, and they will, they're going to be attempted. These people will try and kill them. It goes on here. And so a lot of people are saying, who, is, who are these two witnesses? And uh, we have some indications based on what goes on here in verse 4 and on. Uh, first verse 4 says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, it's, it's not a stretch to think first and foremost that these are two Jewish people. Not a stretch to think that because we have the symbolism here in the olive trees and the lampstands. That's very Jewish. So these guys are probably Jewish in nature. And this also reflects back to a vision that was given to Zechariah. Um, you know, as the children of Israel, we're, we're going to come back into the land after the Babylonian captivity to reestablish Jerusalem and the temple and all of these kinds of things. In his vision, in Zechariah, um, you know, chapter 4, I believe it is, um, he, it, it says that these two olive trees and lampstands represent two anointed ones. So that it represents two anointed ones. And, and John is referring back to this here. So it's obviously probably talking about the same two. We know from history that the two anointed ones that came from Babylonian, Babylonian captivity back to the nation of Israel to reestablish the temple and such are two men named Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua and Zerubbabel, they're, they're the two guys that God sent to be kind of at the helm of uh, rebuilding the temple and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it's interesting that it was... God who told Zerubbabel when he looked at the pile of rubble in the middle of Jerusalem and he's like, how, how are we supposed to rebuild this? Like, look at this, God. This is a disaster. 
How are we supposed to do anything with this? And you know what God told him? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And here represented in this, you know, we have the olive tree yielding the olive oil that would be put into these lamps to burn forever and ever. Continuous flow, Zachariah saw. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit, the continuous flow into these lampstands. These, these witnesses who are going to probably be Jewish are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. And it reminds us of the power that we're called to operate by, doesn't it? We can do nothing on our own. These witnesses can do nothing on their own. They need the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended that he would fill them with power to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This scripture here is, is what, what we call it in Calvary Chapel, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people go, well, no, that's not really it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the, um, at the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We believe there are three relationships that human beings have with the Holy Spirit. Everybody has one relationship. The Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be with us. He's in the world. He's drawing people to himself. Nobody can call upon Jesus as Lord unless God draws him. How does God draw a person? Through the Holy Spirit. Every person in, in uh, the history of the world has had the with experience of the Holy Spirit. But then there's the, the inexperience of the Holy Spirit, which is when you're saved at salvation, God seals you with his spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 talks about that, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So if you're a believer here this morning, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've had that experience with the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's forever. Once you're sealed with the Spirit, you don't get unsealed with the Spirit. It's, it's a judicial act. Romans chapter 5, you've been justified by faith. It does, you do not... Uh, God does not pull that back. You're sealed until the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, 14. Uh, but then there's also, the Bible defines for us, a, another experience of the Holy Spirit, which is, def, which is uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's different than being sealed with the Spirit. And what does he say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you for the purpose of what? To be my witness. This is a, spe a specific empowerment of the Holy Spirit in a moment when you need it that the Holy Spirit falls upon you and he, he gives you some ability to do something that's not normal, that's not of you. Maybe it's to, to really, you know, witness to somebody in a way that th words you don't even have in your vocabulary that God uses in your life. Or it could be that God, you know, gives you the ability to touch somebody and they're healed or whatever the case is. It's a, f a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. It's an act where the Lord comes upon you in a moment and he gives you that. Now, you don't have to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's just a word we use. You know, what, what, what it is, is it's an empowerment. And maybe some of you here today have said, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sealed with the Spirit, but I don't know if I've ever experienced the, the upon experience, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I bet you have. I bet you have. Could you, could you not know it? I, I think you could. But here's what I would say. Seek the Lord. Uh, there's a scripture in the Bible that says, the Lord says, you know, you who are given... Um, Good fathers, evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. Well, me, you know, how much more will the, will the Father give you the Holy Spirit who asks? I would encourage you this morning, if you've never, if you're not sure if you've ever experienced that this morning or ever in your life, in your walk with the Lord, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you ask him, Lord, I think you have to be open to it. I think you have to be willing to be used by God in a way for, he doesn't just do it to do it, you know? It's like Moses didn't just like, he wasn't walking down the road going like this, well, look at my hand, it's like leprous, now it's not. You know, he didn't, doesn't just do that for our, our entertainment, right? He doesn't give us the Holy Spirit for our entertainment. He gives it for his purpose. 
But I would encourage you, I don't know that you'll, um, you'll ever know or you'll ever experience it unless you seek him and tell him you're available and say, God, I want to be available. I want to be used by you. Uh, it seems to me that these men, whoever they are, are filled with the Holy Spirit to such a degree that it says that they work at will. Whenever they desire, they do these things. And I think that requires a, a very uh, a certain level of surrender to God, you know, and a commitment to be used by him in a way that would honor and glorify him. And I also think that it's, it's a special instance, too. It's sort of like the apostolic authority is a special witness. It's an instance where God uses certain guys to do certain things. doesn't mean everybody will do that, but, but, but the fact of the matter is you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and God wants to use you as witnesses in the world, so he will give you the power to do it. Um, is this Joshua and Zerubbabel? I, I don't think so based on what we see here uh, as John goes on in verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, speaking to these two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during these days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who can you think of uh, in the Old Testament that is associated with, with fire and shutting up the heavens? Elijah, right? He called down fire from heaven upon, you know, a, a sopping wet altar, by the way, and God consumed it. He prayed, and the heavens were shut up, no rain. And then he prayed again, and it rained. You know, he, he, Elijah is uh, one of those who uh, definitely fits that description. Y your mind might also wander over to James and John, you know, the sons of thunder. They, uh, when they were, Jesus and they were traveling through Samaria, and the Samaritans wouldn't receive them, the, the town that they were in. And as they're going out of town, James and John look over and Jesus go, hey, should we call fire down from heaven upon these people? I mean, it's like, Remember, when you see them in heaven, you're like, hey, uh, don't, call down, don't call fire down from heaven on me. Well, that'll be the joke in heaven, right? But, uh, but it's, interesting that, um, it's interesting that they asked him that, I think. Do you think, they, do you think they had the ability to call fire down from heaven? Why would they ask him if they didn't think they did? They knew Jesus could give them the ability to do anything, and he can do that with you. But Elijah did have the ability, and he did do these things. So, you know, um, and also I think it's interesting that um, there's a prophecy in the very last book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, that is almost the very last verse. It's the second to the last verse in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's interesting because Jesus' disciples then when they were walking with him, they said, hey, uh, in Mark chapter 9, they asked him, why, why, do you, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And speaking about before the, the Messiah. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did not... Uh, they, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So there was a prophecy that was given in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And Jesus says, kind of says it was fulfilled. He said, Elijah has come. And, uh, you know, a lot of people believe that was John the Baptist who came. And, you know, was he Elijah or, or not and, and such. But, but again, this is very Jewish in nature. And they are, the Jews are waiting for Elijah to come. Uh, during the Seder meal, there's an empty seat at the table. I know what you're thinking. It's not for Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. It's for Elijah. They're waiting for Elijah to come. At the end of the meal, from what I understand, the website I was reading from a Jewish man <laughs> said that what the ritual that they do is they pour a cup of wine on the table 
It's called the cup of Elijah. It's for him when he comes. Then they go to the door, they open the door up, and they, they read um, many different scriptures, primarily out of the Psalms, and they're asking God to come down and to, to pour his wrath upon their persecutors and oppressors. And they say, as they're doing that, that their home is then graced with the presence of Elijah, the prophet, and, and in that moment th that he comes to them. Now, there is an Old Testament scripture that says he's coming. I don't know if it's like that. But I, I can tell you this, the only spirit I want coming to my house is the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't want Elijah's spirit in my house. I want the Holy Spirit because his spirit does nothing. The Holy Spirit does everything. But, but regardless, that's what they're waiting for. They're longing for that. The disciples of Jesus were looking for that. And, and it's interesting that here we have somebody who really does sort of seem like it's Elijah being represented in the way that it's described here. But then it goes on here and it says, who, who else? you know, it says also they'll be, have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who does that sound like? Moses, right? Moses was used by God to do these kinds of things. And as he went to, you know, into the Egypt to, um, you know, tell the Pharaoh to let his people go. It's also interesting that Moses, just the verse before the Elijah verse in Malachi, in chapter 4, verse, um, verse 4, Moses is mentioned. Here it says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes of, and rules that I have commanded him at Horeb and for all of Israel. And then it goes on to talk about Elijah. It's just interesting that they're mentioned together at the last book of the Bible, almost the very last verses before the New Testament begins. What's also interesting is it was Moses and Elijah who showed up at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus transfigured before Peter, James, and John. It was him. Uh, you know, am I saying dogmatically this is, these two uh, witnesses are Moses and Elijah? No, because I don't know. It doesn't say. But, but we can see by these descriptions, it sure sounds like them. Some people believe that it's that it was Enoch and Elijah, and the reason for that is because they didn't die, right? They didn't die. Both of them have, uh, um, they were taken up like the rapture of the church, but by the way, you don't have to die apparently because we're going to be raptured. Some people will not experience death. Jesus said you won't taste deaths. Some people will be raptured up and they won't experience that, but there is a scripture that says it's appointed a man to die and then the judgment. So for some reason, people think that, oh, well, it must be them. All I can tell you is two witnesses are going to show up, and they're going to do some, some crazy stuff. Like when people try to kill them, they're going to breathe fire on them, and they're going to die. Like they're going to defend themselves. They will be unstoppable for three and a half years. Three and a half years, nobody will be able to do anything against them. And it says here that they will be able to do uh, you know, to shut up the heavens or to, you know, pro to turn water into blood and plague the earth as they desire. As they desire, they'll be able to do that. It's, a, it's an authority that God has granted to these two witnesses in this moment so that they can be his witnesses in this world. He goes on here, and we're, we're going to close here in just a minute, but but there is, comes a point where this stops in verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and Nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them uh, be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So like anything, God has a plan. And there's a time appointed for these two witnesses. It's three and a half years, period. Not a day sooner and not a day later. Three and a half years, the Lord allows the, the, you know, the beast from the, the bottomless pit to come up and prevail against these two witnesses, to make war with them and to kill them. God is allowing this, and these two witnesses will end up dying in that moment. And, and it makes me wonder, 
like we do even now, what will those who were following these two witnesses in this culture in this day, I wonder what they'll think when that happens. Even though the word of God declares it, what they'll think. Do you know the disciples walked with Jesus? Jesus told them over and over again, I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to rise again from the dead. The Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would come. Isaiah 53 you know, um, Psalm 22, Psalm 16. You talk about these various messianic promises that are talking about Jesus. And yet, when Jesus was crucified, his disciples on Saturday morning were not out proclaiming the gospel. They were up in a room freaking out going, what just happened? What just happened? And when these guys are killed in this moment, I wonder if there won't be a thread of that in believers that are honored during the tribulation going, what just happened? Why do I say that? Because that can happen to you even now, and you can wonder, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this? I don't understand, God. Why would you have these guys come and proclaim this stuff? And it seems like, you know, God, you're using them in great ways, and then you would allow them to be killed three and a half years later because he has a plan, just like he does for your life. I love what Pastor Chuck used to say. When you encounter those things that you don't understand, fall back on those things that you do. Listen, God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. Nothing catches him off guard. And if you're experiencing some situation that has lamb-blasted you, it hasn't him. And he has a plan and a purpose. And I promise you, if you're a believer and you're in Christ, your days on this earth will be exactly the number of days that he says they will be. And there will nothing, nothing anybody can do about it. Nobody can take you from his hand. Don't go step out in front of a bus later, by the way. <laughs> Don't tempt the Lord. Do not tempt the Lord. But the point is, he has a plan here. And God, listen, God does his greatest work in times when it makes the least sense. God does his greatest work in times when it makes the least sense. Some of the most significant moments in the Bible occur in the strangest circumstances. And here, it's nonetheless true. You have these guys that are killed, and for three and a half days, their bodies are laid in the street, and people will walk by them, and they will rejoice over it. Yeah, see, you know, and you're, you're thinking, like, what in the world is wrong with people? It's called sin. The hardness of heart, that's what can happen to you, to me, to anybody, if we harden our heart against the Lord. But, but they, they're, they mar they're merry, and they exchange presents. How bizarre is that? probably convert December 25th into two-witness dead guy day or something, and they're exchanging gifts. Wouldn't that make sense? Oh, let's take Jesus out of the picture, and let's put, maybe, maybe that's the case. But God is allowing this to, to occur because he has a bigger purpose, and check it out. It tells us what it is in verse 11, but after the three and a half days of breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at the, that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. God resurrects these two men, these two, two, two witnesses of him, breathing the same breath that Adam breathed in, the same breath that you and I received when we became saved by the Lord, the breath of life, the Holy Spirit comes in there and gives them life, and great fear fell upon the people. They're like, whoa, look at that. By the way, in chapter 13, uh, we'll see that happen again with the prophet of the Antichrist here with the mortal wound. We'll see that later in the chapter, but, but uh, in, in, in the book of Revelation. But here we find the world in fear of what has just happened because God has, is at work in this situation. And Jesus calls, I believe this is the voice of Jesus, come up here, the same voice that John heard in Revelation chapter 4. Come up here. And it's be the same voice that you and I will hear when he calls us home. In the rapture, 
longing for that day, but he tells these two witnesses, come up here, and they will be instantly gone, I think, but they are ascending just like Jesus ascended, in my mind at least, into the clouds, and it says everybody watched them. Their enemies watched them ascend up into heaven. They went up in the clouds. And then, not only that, like that's a pretty big deal. I haven't seen anybody do that, but I would guess that's a pretty big deal. And then a massive earthquake occurs. A tenth of the city is destroyed, and 7,000 people die like that. Do you know when Jesus died, there was a mighty earthquake to the point that dead dudes came up, right? I mean, it was a miraculous thing, and people still didn't believe. People still didn't believe. It's interesting here, though. It says the rest who were there, I think in, in, in Jerusalem here, the rest, I believe this is a reference to Jews who were there, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That reference, that, that idea of giving glory to God is a reference to salvation. It's a reference to salvation here. A lot of people are like, well, you know, did they, was this saving faith or what kind of faith was this? I, I don't know. If it wasn't saving faith, I don't know why God would include it in, in the word of God here in this moment. What I know is that you know, we, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And I know that the world, we want God to just crack the sky open and save the person that we love so much. But I can tell you, they could see all kinds of stuff and still not believe. You know, we need to pray for their spiritual eyes to be opened. And somehow I believe in this moment, through this instance, we don't know what it takes for people, folks. For some, it probably, that's all it, that, that's all it took. I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty massive. <laughs> I don't know, but... Uh, you know, but, but they, I believe that, you know, some, some come to Christ here. And th their eyes are opened and they, they live for the Lord probably a very short period of time because pretty much you become a believer in the tribulation period, you're going to die. Except for the 144,000 who were sealed, they, they won't die. They'll, they'll go all the way through the tribulation period protected by God to be his witnesses in this world. You and I are wired for the very things that we consider in our scripture today, for worship and for witness. You know, we're, we're called, we are the temple of God, we take the glory of God everywhere we go, and everywhere we go, we're worshiping. Don't forget that. And in the midst of your worship, as you're encountering the various trials that come in life, know that God will use those to give you opportunities to witness to people. We have the greatest privilege in all of the world you guys, we have an incredible privilege to be witnesses for Christ in these last days. Let's take it with everything, give it everything that we got, and let's see what the Lord will do, man. Surrender your heart to him. Open yourself up to him. Allow the Holy Spirit to flow through you, and you'll be amazed at what he'll do. Amen? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.